sitting here with my old professor, Dr. Robert Kelly. Welcome to the David Ian Howe podcast. Uh, I've been in the field for a hot minute, so I haven't really posted much, but welcome to the new podcast. I'm going to start doing these whenever I can and post them here on YouTube and also put them on Spotify and iTunes and the whole deal. Uh, again, I've been in the field for a month at the La Prairie Mammoth site in Wyoming, and several of my former professors are here, including Dr. Robert Kelly, who I'm interviewing. Uh, Dr. Kelly is a brilliant man, like one of the most brilliant anthropologists out there. He wrote the book on hunter-gatherers. It's called The Foraging Spectrum, or also The Lifeways of Hunter-Gatherers is the new version. That is a book that, you know, kind of overviews how humans operate on a landscape and how humans operate as zoological beings, but also as homo sapiens at the same time, uh, in the past, in the present, and in the future. It's awesome. And speaking of that, he also wrote a book called The Fifth Beginning. And in this book, it's an overview of human history, and he divides it into five beginnings or five sections of time that kind of show the progress of humanity as if somebody was watching it from the outside. Um, and it's a quick, really easy read that you can read on a plane. And if you want a quick introduction to world prehistory, anthropology, and archaeology in general, this is the book for you. It's called The Fifth Beginning. I'll put the link here in the description. And one last thing, this is Wyoming, we're filming this in the field, so it is windy and there's a lot of trucks on the highway behind us, so the sound kind of goes in and out. I put subtitles where those are, but the rest of the video is solid and I hope you watch the whole thing. So thank you. This is episode one with Dr. Robert Kelly. Uh, you got your PhD at Michigan, correct? Correct. Undergraduate at Cambridge? No. No. Um, sorry. Undergraduate at Cornell. Cornell. My right. master's from New Mexico. New Mexico. And you were a Benford student? At New Mexico, yes. And then in Michigan, whose were you? Uh, I worked under John Speth. Okay. I should probably know that name. Um, anyway, well, my first question is, do you remember my lithics class presentation? <laughs> your lithics class presentation on your, your Arrow project. Yes. You don't have to remember it, but... I do remember it. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know in the audience or listening, I wrote it in class. Well, I wrote half of it in class. The rest of it I did at home, but something was wrong with it, so I had to redo it all. And then it got to me, and I was like, I'm still writing it. <laughs> you just, like, skipped me and went to the next person. And I did it, and it was an awesome PowerPoint. However, I did the uh, uh, the coding thing I was doing for Todd's class, and I went to hit, like, the whole presentation predicated on me hitting this button that did all the stats, and it said error. And the grin on your face was one of my favorite memories of grad school. Uh, <laughs> it's a good time. Um I think I did well. But anyway, that segues into my first question. What does it mean to be human, Bob? Oh, um, I guess, yeah, we'll start with the simple stuff and work our way up. <laughs> uh, what it means to be human. For, for me, what, what sets a humans apart from all the rest of the um, you know, sentient organic life on the planet is that we have uh, culture. We have the capacity to think about what what life is supposed to be we have the capacity to ask the question what does it mean to be human i don't think chimps ask themselves what does it mean to be a, a chimp but we can ask ourselves that question and we become very concerned with that that question and different cultures have different answers to that to that question in your studies like what is one culture that sticks out to you that has a good answer to that question hmm. or an intriguing one to you I think I think all of them have in, intriguing answers. Um, the the one that you're brought up with seems the most obvious and rational. And <clears throat> well, of course, it's the right one. But that's the way everyone in the world thinks as 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 well. Yeah. So, I've um, I I suppose I I was attracted to hunting and gathering societies because they. Um, they certainly seem to be less interested in material things. I mean, they need certain tools and clothing and houses and so on, but those don't seem to be what's really important, right? They use a tool, it gets, it gets dull and worn out, and they throw it away, and that's what an archaeologist collects. Um, for, for them, what, what, what was more important was, was people and relationships to, to people and maintaining... <clears throat> good relationships between between people and i think that's one of the things that even when i was very young attracted me to uh the study of hunting and gathering societies now they're not 
they're not the, the world's perfect societies. I've, I've lost those sort of romantic notions of, of hunter-gatherers. But, but I do think they have something left to teach us, and one of those is privileged people over everything else. Fascinating. Okay. Is that um, the answer you expected, David? Uh, it's something interesting, at least. Uh, yes, as, as close. Um, let me try to think here, segueing from that. Uh, what do you think... I mean, you're a hunter-gatherer anthropologist. You wrote the book on hunter-gatherers. Um, we could nerd out all day about that, too, and I'd like to. Do you think that hunter-gatherers are the ideal state for humanity? I, I, I don't think there's any... Um, ideal state for humanity because the conditions that humanity lives under changes all the time. So, you know, we live in a world of uh, we're pushing eight, 8 billion people on the planet. This planet cannot sustain 8 billion people as hunter, hunter gatherers. Uh, maybe uh, uh, a couple of tens of millions, if that, uh, but, but not 8 billion people. We can't. We can't go back to hunting and, and gathering. Um, although if the apocalypse does hit, yeah, I, I, I imagine sales of my book will go through the roof. <laughs> sure. Um, I think we were talking about this the other day on the bus roof, but I've, I've always noticed in post-apocalyptic fiction, it always resorts to, not to say that it's band-level societies, but that's the most apt description of it, where people forage in small groups, um, in I Am Legend, Will Smith and his dog forage New York City, and he even has a little map pointing out where he's gone and foraged before, which would be his, uh, his diet, not his diet breath, that would be his, I'm trying to think of the thing in like the hexagons that's in your book, um, the foraging radius? The foraging radius, yeah, he's okay. got a, definitely has a foraging radius, there's only so far he can go right. before he has to be back home before night, nightfall. <laughs> right, yeah, from the, the zombie vampire creatures. Um, Walking Dead as well, they always start out in a small band of people, and like there's a struggle to see who's the leader, and they have to forage, and I believe one season started with them like literally foraging for cat food, and that's all they could eat, and he was like, I can't do this anymore, we need to change. And they found a prison where they then started farming and had corn in there, and once that happened, lo and behold, another faction of humans comes to take that land mm -hmm. because... It's arable, you mm -hmm. know. I always thought that was fascinating. Are there any other, like, even in fiction or things like that, that you enjoy where anthropology is kind of screaming at you, but you can't explain it to your friends because you're going to interrupt them kind of thing? Because you're going to ruin the movie yeah. for them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, if, if people had to <clears throat> resort to, to foraging in, in, the, in, like, The Walking Dead, the, the problem there is that the... Um, those point sources of food, like abandoned supermarkets, mm -hmm. are not going to be replenished. Those are one-time right. su supplies. So, um, and the the in the prison <clears throat> was that series, second series, or season two or season three? I can't remember. I it was two. Yeah, I stopped um, watching. But. They they uh, um. They, they find some, some arable land inside a, a protected area because it's a prison. It's got a big fence around it, right? Yeah. So that's good. It keeps the zombies out. Uh, the, that, that's a point source of, of, of resources. And when that happens, that's when people have got two choices. We can either cooperate or we can compete. Mm. Movies always choose compete. Sure. Because... Um, Cooperating would be boring as a as a movie, but it might very well be the the option that that people would take, and it's the option that that they really ought ought to take as as well. Okay. <clears throat> um, I know you enjoy Firefly. I've been told that by many people. Is there something? I mean, something sticks out to me in that series that is anthropologically intriguing. But is there something to you that you enjoy most about that? Cool. <clears throat> This one's coming from left field. Okay. <laughs> I have more. Uh -huh. I was as upset as everyone else when the series was canceled because it, it was just really well, well done. Um, but they're, they're also encountering, like, like every mm -hmm. sort of space travel 
Um, media presentation. Sure. They're 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 running into other other people, right? Mm -hmm. And and they have to find some way to cope with those other other people. Um, Star Trek was the, the best of this. That's sure. what it was really all all about. Uh, and and those programs, of course, are not designed to tell us here's how people ought to act. They're really designed to entertain, sort of grapple with grapple with the problems facing the world uh, today. Sure. Um, I I think what the, the hunter gatherers got by with problems with other people. Um, the the first first way they did it was just by moving. And the world gets colonized after about 75,000 years ago when modern humans were moved out of Africa and they eventually move across uh, Asia, across the Bering Strait into North, uh, Central and South, uh, South America. And I've often wondered whether that the, one of the things driving that colonization process um, was not some colonization mindset like, mm -hmm. like that of, of uh, uh, 16th century Europe, right. but um, but it was really just them dealing with social problems. This is I can't stand my brother-in-law anymore, so I pack up and I move. Yeah, and uh, and, and I don't go back. So that that's one way that they can that they can do that because there was all this land out there that there were no no people. In, so. mm. They can move into the new, new, new country. Uh, but the other way they do it is by finding ways to, um, what do the Bushmen say, uh, cool, cool their hearts. Find ways to cool people's hearts. So if, if somebody starts mm, trying to act very important, mm -hmm. um, they, have, they have various ways to let that person know you're getting too big for your britches and gotcha. they cool their hearts, right? So a hunter who brings in a nice fats, you know, antelope, they start telling them that's, that's awful. That's the worst animal I've ever seen in my life. It's, yeah. it's terrible. They don't want them to get to, to, as the, as the Bushmen say, if, if somebody starts thinking themselves real important, mm. the next thing you know, they're, they'll, they'll kill some. Okay. So they always have these leveling mechanisms to kind of bring people down. They have leveling mechanisms to make sure that goods get widely cir circulated uh, around a, a camp. I remember Richard Lee telling the story about um, uh, uh, young um, quasi men in Botswana would go off to work in the town. Mm -hmm. And when they came back, they had all this stuff. Right, clothes and things that they had bought in the big city, and sure. and within twenty four hours, it's sort of they've got none of it. It's all gone out to everybody, every every everyone else. Interesting. Uh, so so those personal possessions, having those things, is not as um, is not as important as having them in order to give them away. Because you build all these relationships by sort of giving, giving stuff away. So being generous becomes a very important um, personal uh, attribute. Okay. So would you say that most, or not most, but like, is it a tendency of foraging societies to be more communal and more like fraternal, I guess, in that sense, or more prone to sharing with each other? There, there. I, I don't really know what communal might mean in this case. Sure. Um, I guess I'm thinking like a potlatch. Potlatch uh, like gets to be a little bit different because those are sedentary hunter gatherers. They're ones right. living under population uh, pressure, and things change in that case. In the potlatch, there's it, it, it's it's considered to be run by one individual. It takes a whole village mm. to do the potlatch. But it's really done in order to show the prestige and power of one individual on behalf of his village. And I say his because I, I, I don't know of any potlatches that are run by women. There may well have been in the past. But, mm. um, and the, those potlatches, you, it's usually done by a big village that invites a smaller village in. 
And the message that they're communicating to this smaller village by giving them all these things, food, but also blankets and canoes and all sorts of things, is a way to signal to that other village, don't even think about messing with us. Gotcha. Because we're bigger and more powerful than you are. And it's all manifested in this potlatch. And the, the one the one man who's doing it um, is is communicating all these people here, they're all behind me. They all back me. Don't mess with this village. We will act as one against you. And that's 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 really the purpose of a potlatch. It's a it's competitive feasting. It's a way of demonstrating we are more powerful than you are. I never really saw it like that, I guess. I kind of always saw it, and maybe I just didn't read it right, but which is probably apt. But like trading food and showing people, like you know, I you owe me this because I've showed you this kind of. They're like it's it's a public forum in which people see what you owe each other. Or am I thinking of something different? No, it's it's when you hold a, a potlatch, you are expected to return it. Okay. At some point in the future. So the way the um, uh, a high-ranking man in, in a, say, Kwakwakwak uh, uh, village um, gets to hold a potlatch. Is he's holding all these smaller potlatches for all these other men in the village, and those men are expected to return the potlatch, and they have to give back the same amount of stuff that he gave them, plus a little bit more. I mean, it's it's straight-up investment banking. Hmm. So. When this powerful man now has enough stuff, he holds this potlatch for this smaller village. And that smaller village is expected to return it. But that smaller village will never be able to. Okay. They're too small. So they are forever sort of told, you have less prestige than this village. Because they can't return that, that, that potlatch. It's, it's a competition. Wow. That's fascinating. I never really thought of it like that. It's, it's, I mean, it goes on at lots of different levels in all kinds of, of societies. It's, it's a way of sending a message out. This is how powerful we are. Yeah. Why would, why would a, a country parade all of its military weapons out? Because they know it's all being broadcast to the rest of the world, and it's a way for them to say, don't mess with us. Look what we have. Right. Do we have a modern-day interpretation of that? that like would or a modern day example of that doing doing just that mili- military parades like a russian made a parade kind of thing yeah north korean their their purpose is to wanted. communicate to the world this is what we have this is how powerful we are don't mess with us fascinating okay um i'd like to move on now to are you allowed to talk about the new art project Sure, why not? Okay. Um, so I understand you're going through and finding the oldest evidences of, you know, human expression or like a modified art in some sense, or what would be your definition of that? Ah, <laughs> it's like, what is art, right? That, sure. that, that's, there's an easy question. Yes, let's oh, go wait, with that one. What is human? We did what is human, so yeah. what, what is art? Why not? When, when I wrote my book, The Fifth Beginning, I, I, mm-hmm. I did a lot of reading in an area that I wasn't very familiar with, which, which dealt with the origins of uh, the human capacity for, for culture. Right. And culture is this, this abstract understanding of the world, of what life is supposed to be like, um, of what your men are supposed to do, what women are supposed to do, what, what you're supposed to do as an old person, what is a wealthy person supposed to do, all these sorts of things about how life is supposed to progress right and culture constantly has this conversation with itself about is that really what life is all about because what you think life should be is never what life actually is Mm -hmm. right life should be long and and happy and pleasant and life is often short and miserable and horrible so there's this mismatch between always a mismatch between what we think life should be and what life actually is. So culture is this constant conversation about that. And then it can get especially complicated when you start having hierarchical societies and somebody's commenting on 
life is supposed to be egalitarian. We should, we should, we, why, why am I a poverty stricken peasant while there's a wealthy king? So art is all a way to kind of talk about that. Gotcha. Um, and and it, it, it always is. It always ha has been a way to kind of talk about, about life and our dissatisfaction with it and trying to, um, uh, show that the, the, the king is wearing no, no clothes, right? Sure. Uh, so I, I assumed that once people became cultural, this, the, 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 um, the production of what I call artifacts of symbolic expression, that's to get around the word art, mm -hmm. right? But they're, they're just artifacts whose, it, it appears that their primary purpose is to communicate some kind of meaning. I don't know what the meaning is. Could Getting, it have just been a doodle? It's, it's, it could be. Yeah. But even those have meaning to, to them. That is very true. Yeah. You were uh, so, uh, so I wanted to know when, when did this capacity appear and also what's, what was its trajectory over time once it appeared? Well, what we, what we had to do, we wanted to look at the distribution of these artifacts of symbolic expression uh, over time, from about 40,000 years ago, back as far as we could. Mm -hmm. As you go back further and further in time, some of these objects become harder to convince yourself that they're actually something, right? Mm -hmm. So like striations on a seashell or something like that. Something like that. You yeah. just don't, is, is that is that symbols at work or is that somebody using a seashell as a sort of working surface oh, to cut yeah. meat and and, and huh. they cut through this the shell, right? It, the, the, it gets hard to interpret some of this stuff. But um, the 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 question that a number of people were interested in was this peak in the origination period in uh, Europe. Mm. And there's this, up, up, appears to be this massive jump, this rapid jump in the production of these kinds of uh, objects. This is the time um, of a, about 40, 45,000 years ago, people were producing these, uh, oh, these wonderfully cute little um, uh, ivory uh, uh, figurines, little mammoths, and mm -hmm. uh, little little bears, and, and waterfowl, and uh, all these different little animals, and they're they're only a couple of inches long, right? I've I've seen many of these, and then there's the lion man, about forty thousand years old, the, found in a cave in southern southern Germany. It's like a figurine, or like a, a stands statue. about stands about thirty centimeters tall. Yeah, carved out of uh, ivory, and it's um, it's. It's half human, half lion. Uh, so what's that all about? I, I don't know, and I'm not sure I ever will know, but I do know it's about something. Sure. Right? There's some meaning there. And we get lots and lots of that in the Orgnation, right? People have called it the creative, uh, uh, the creative uh, explosion. But other people have said, look, you find similar kinds of objects going back further and further in time, maybe back to 200,000 years ago, if not earlier. Mm -hmm. And they said, the reason you have this peak at 40,000 years ago is um, because of the destruction of the archaeological record due to natural processes. Rivers wash sites away. Um, uh, they get deeply buried beneath the volcanic ashes and uh, uh, alluvium that that rivers deposit, um, they they get destroyed through de decomposition, because many of these objects are not in stone; they're in ivory, they're in bone, mm -hmm. they're uh, uh, shell, marine shell, or ostrich uh, uh, eggshell. Right. Ostrich eggshell beads are very very common in uh, Africa. Uh, these organic mediums, which can last a long time, but they do eventually de decompose. So some people said the reason you have that peak in the Orignation is because of this loss of the earlier archaeological record through destruction of sites or through de de decomposition. So it's a taphonomic issue. It's a, this is a, what we call a taphonomic problem. Okay. So, uh, but they just left it there. They just said, well, if you hadn't had this destruction, 
the in, instead of this peak in the orignation, you probably have a ramping up more and more and more stuff. Starting about 200,000 years ago, you'd get a ramping up to the orignation. Mm -hmm. Or you'd get a peak very early, 200,000, and then it basically plateaus, right? You've, you've got just as much production 200,000 years ago as you have 40,000 years ago. So the answer is to take the, the, the record and correct it for taphonomic laws, which we can actually do in a, in a crude, simple way, but, but we can do this. So our, the first thing I had to do was compile all the data on these artifacts of symbolic expression, mm -hmm. along with some estimates of their age ranges, because some of them can't be dated precisely, but they can be dated precisely to a, 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 a two, three thousand year period. Mm -hmm. So we compiled all of those records. There, there's about 240 odd uh, of these, of ones that we could date, and ones that I considered to be artifacts of symbolic expression. And I tried to use a very liberal def definition uh, of that. And the, we were then able to kind of mathematically correct the distribution over time of these objects mm -hmm. uh, for taphonomic loss. And the answer is that the Aurignacian peak is still there. Even after you've corrected for taphonomic loss, that peak is still is still present. So there's something going on, primarily in Europe, about 40, 45,000 year, years ago. And that's probably the, the encounter between modern humans moving out of Africa and the Neanderthals who sure. are already in, in Europe. I have something I've wanted to ask you for a while um, since I figured this out and I just haven't had the medium to ask you, but it goes right into what you just said. Uh, I recently learned a guy had had a surgery on his brain, um, and everything went well. And when he went, this isn't a joke. <laughs> he went, sounds like I'm talking about a joke, but <laughs> he goes to the doctor, and the doctor is like, any complications? And he said, no, I, I feel fine. However, I can't see anything anymore. And he was like, well, you're not blind. And he said, no, like in my head, I can't see anything. And the doctor looked this up, and apparently it's called aphantasia. And there's some people that cannot process mental images where others can. So the test would be, and you guys can all do this too, if you close your eyes and like try to picture an apple, if it's like in 4K, like you, you don't have that issue. If like it's kind of blurry, you might not. And if it's black, like I don't see anything, you have aphantasia. So like... I think in like, th this gets all woo-woo, but I think in like thoughts and feelings, I don't have like images, which is why I love working with that artist because I'm like, I want an Aurignacian man in a hyena cave with his dog and like he just spits it back at me. I'm like, I've never pictured that before in my life and now I know why. <laughs> um, so I wondered, I love handprints. Like I stare at them all the time. I was painting them over there. I have the tattoos and stuff and like, they just fascinate me. And I met another person who also had this thing too. She had reached out to me on Instagram when I talked about it. And she showed me her paintings in her house and she had handprints. And she was also obsessed with them. Um, and I wondered, is it at that time period um, where maybe what I have is vestigial and what modern humans have, not that I'm not modern human, but you know, we still have some vestigial things, is that click and like they start painting things all over the walls because they can see it. Hmm. And my artist said that he can go, if I want a Clovis landscape and like paint that, he told me he can sit there, manipulate that whole image in his head, change the lighting, add more animals and things. And he gets frustrated because he can't paint it as well as he sees it in his head. And I'm like, dude, you're amazing. And he's like, no, it's not perfect yet. It had me thinking, I have to create things because like I have to make videos. I have to paint because I can't see it in my head in a way. And apparently you can kind of train yourself to get there, but I've been working on it. But like counting sheep and things like that, I, I didn't realize people actually did that. I thought it was just metaphorical. And like picture yourself on a beach. I don't see it. It's just like, like my teachers would like do it. I, I don't see it. <laughs> I just thought everyone else was kind of like making it up. So I wondered, is that what happens then? Because some people do have it. I think it's 1% of the population. And apparently people that have it are always very analytical and they're more data driven which i thought was interesting you remember facts 
Does it have to do with modern humans? I don't know. But um, it, it the, the in the fifth beginning, I argued that once that that any any population that's cultural and that's using symbols to communicate and is capable of using symbols to communicate and we i mean we communicate with symbols all the time we can look at someone's clothing and we'll and we're going to make some decision about them it may be the wrong decision right oh that person's dangerous um that person's really weird it it, it may be completely the, the wrong dis- decision but there is it there there is an automatic link made between the way someone looks and how we're going to think about them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, oh darn, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> You're good. <laughs> uh, the, there, there are some people who have that capacity mm-hmm. um, in spades, right? They've just they've got the, uh, the the capacity is on a bell curve, and they're out here at the far end of the bell curve mm-hmm. that. The only way they can sort of deal with the world is through some kind of manipulation of symbols. It might be art, painting, mm-hmm. it might be sculpture, it might be music, writing. It might, it might be writing. Yeah, these are these all these artistic pursuits that somebody can't can't seem to handle the world except through that that vehicle, and they can't seem to do anything except except that. So, so someone like Beethoven, who could, right. who could hear music when he was stone deaf, mm-hmm. right? He could still hear it and write it down because he could see, he knew exactly what those notes. He could hear the the music that he was writing down in his in his head. I play a little piano. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Uh, uh, so, so you're always going to have people like that, and they're. They're, at some point, they're going to probably recognize I'm different mm-hmm. than other people. I see things in a different way. I I really have got this mania about painting hands on the yeah. on the cave the cave wall. And other people are going to go, "What the heck is Joe up to? What? Yeah, he's painting his hands again. What? Well, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, uh, and, and they don't get it. Uh, mm-hmm. And Joe doesn't get why they don't get it. Sure." But those are those are individuals who usually become shamans. They're the ones who are really questioning why why do I think about the world this way and no one else seems to think about the world the way that I do. Yeah. Those are those are the people who become shamans. Fascinating. Put a pin in that because I have more questions on that. But I had seen I went to the Met in New York. So when, so I guess David, you're a shaman, David. Oh, I I kind of assume that's what you're pointing to, but. Um, I guess we'll go into that one. I don't have schizophrenia. I'll say that. However, I have seen that there's a link between uh, shamans and they believe that it might have been like a schizophrenic kind of trance back mm-hmm. in the day. Do you have? Is there any like credence to that? Or I suspect that some of the the things that uh, modern society considers mental mental uh, uh, illness mm. is has to do with this capacity for culture. Sure. And some people having it. Uh, having like oh uh, I don't want to say too much of it mm-hmm. or not enough of it. So there's like a sweet spot. You know, there's a kind of a sweet spot in the middle there. Okay. Where where you can operate, but you can still sort of understand symbols. Yeah. I, mean, I I can go to the Louvre and look at paintings and sort of you know discuss them and tell tell you know how they make me feel. Right. Mm-hmm. My favorite art artist is is Hopper. Because okay. his, his the paintings, the paintings are always melancholic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the diner is just that's that's it, right? Right. Uh, night, the Nighthawks. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Night, Nighthawks. You guys know that one? Yeah. That's probably Hopper's most famous painting. Uh, and and that one's all about. It's really about him thinking about how can you be lonely and alienated in a city of several million people? Yeah. And that's that's a, a place where that this is a mismatch. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I suspect that our capacity for culture is also responsible for some of the things that we consider mental illness because these are these are people who are operating with a capacity that's not quite like everyone everyone else's. Right. And I had gone to the Met in New York and saw 
like I, I'd known Van Gogh before, like I not him, but like I've been familiar with his work. Um, and I saw <laughs> like this painting, a self-portrait of his. It's like brown. He's got a straw hat on, mm-hmm. and I was like drawn to it, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and my friend was like, "Are you ready to go to the next floor?" And I was like, "No, I, like I want to see this painting a little more." And I stared at it, and it didn't click with me till like years later. He was painting depression. Friends and I discuss like you know anxiety and depression sometimes and how it's kind of like a magnet kind of sucks you into bed you can't get up some days and stuff like that that's what van gogh was painting to me and like it clicked with me later like oh damn that's what he was doing and you can see how sad he is in the painting and like when i looked more into van gogh like he clearly had some you know ended up cutting his ear off and i think he took his life and whatnot but um yeah you can tell i guess his art comes from a place of like no one understood his world. So the only way he could express that was through painting. And I was yeah. like, damn it, I get art. <laughs> and it was kind of a, a cool moment. But, uh, I guess Hopper was that for you or something similar? I guess I like melancholy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I guess from there, uh, I had another question in regards to art. Let me, I'll edit this down. Um, oldest art. I'll see how, in your your opinion, what is the oldest art? Mm. In in our um, database, the the oldest uh, artifact that's used in the database are the roughly hundred and thirty thousand year old white eagle talons from um, how oh, I'm I'm going to embarrass myself and get this wrong. I think they're from Krapina cave in in Croatia does anyone know if I've got that right or wrong no? but they're they're eagle talons okay. that that were clearly all sort of cut off and it looks like they were designed to be tied onto maybe a necklace um, and it's it's a number of them I forget how many not just not just two it's it's a number of yeah of white white eagles that they had to go and and kill and and it's it's that's not an easy bird to kill yeah so you really have to go out looking looking for it what those things mean i i don't know um but they're but they had some kind of meaning which is why that they're in the database they're an artifact of symbolic uh, expression and that's different than like you know a european cave panel or something classically art you know classically art yeah. yeah yeah we can all look at that and go oh that's art right, right. um although it's really hard for us to know what it means although you can look at modern art and go i, have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I look at jackson pollock's and i go I, someone had diarrhea on a canvas i, just, yeah, I don't know like, what that's all about yeah um so uh yeah that was the oldest one that we included there's probably some uh, somewhat older things but their their dating becomes really pro- problematic mm-hmm. but as you get back further than that the objects themselves also in my opinion become more difficult to demonstrate that they're actually yeah a, an, an artifact whose purpose was to communicate something some symbolically okay so yeah i don't see much before let's let's I'll be generous and say I don't see much before about two hundred thousand that that I can comfortably say is a artifact of symbolic expression, and that's more or less more or less modern human at that point. Um, modern humans, you know, based on sort of skull form, hmm. show up. Our archaic modern humans show up around three hundred thousand years ago, and then modern humans about one hundred ninety-five thousand. Okay. Years ago, I, I mean, again, just biologically modern. Yeah, modern humans. Yeah. Okay, um, I'd like to get on to Laprell uh, towards the end of this, but I do want to talk about. Uh, so I came to Wyoming to work with you, Todd and Nicole. Um, Nicole was Zoark, and like we had read your hunter gatherers book and my undergrad seminar, uh, and Todd's work is also it's like Paleo Indians. Um, but I'd also seen you and I think the three of you on a documentary I'd watched before and it said University of Wyoming and then Dave Anderson was like, you should go to Wyoming. And I was like, oh, I, I know those people. Uh, I learned a lot from you and Todd um, and Nicole when she was there about 
teaching and like speaking and educating. Um, and that's, I think the biggest takeaway I got from Wyoming besides like the, the scientific part. Um, I mean, I, I'm an anthropologist, but I enjoyed watching you lecture. I really enjoyed watching Todd lecture as well. And like everyone who gives presentations at Wyoming at WASP talks and stuff, it's like, I'm always engaged. So do you have any advice for people on how to teach or like how, cause you've won advising awards and things like that. Like what's your special sauce? For public speaking, or I guess just like education in general, yeah. Mm. Um, I think I think anything that I um, do at all well, it's it's only because I either force myself or I was forced by circumstances <laughs> to keep doing it. Okay. So yeah, I want to be a professor. Yeah, I got to get up in front of classes and talk. And the, the, the first time I spoke in front of a class, I'm a, I, I literally couldn't stop shaking. Really? I just, I just shook and shook. It's, it was, it was ter terrifying. Yeah. So that, that, that doesn't happen anymore, fortunately. Um, and I watched people who were good, who were good speakers, mm -hmm. like uh, Binford, who's sure. a phenomenal speaker. He used to lecture to us for five hours. And we were still there. You know? Yeah, I, I mean physically, but also mentally, we were we were still there. The night he went on to midnight, that that was pushing. Was that, that was at pushing. a bar? I think I remember. No, told that us. was in the classroom. Okay, yeah. that's some different story then. Yeah. I, you remember? I remember him telling you telling me he bashed his window in with a shovel. Yeah, his back window in his house <laughs> to get yeah. into his to house. get into yeah. his house. Yeah. Um, the back door. He bashed the back door to get okay to get in because he'd locked his keys inside, right? Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Um. Cool. But yeah. Uh. I wouldn't have pictured you as somebody who shook when they, I mean, I guess we all got to start somewhere, but I always respect that you'd never say, um, or like once, I don't know how you do it. And I listen to my voice sometimes and I'm like, damn, I just I think like, I do that all the time. actually. Really? I don't know. You, you're able to take a pause and like think sometimes. And I, I've tried to get there, but then I'm like stuck with my thoughts and I have to just keep talking. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you do say, um, and like, I'll have to, Go through the back catalog. You can edit those out. Those, <laughs> I can those, do that. So it'll sound like I don't say those. Yeah. Um, okay, so segue on to the last part. Last you and I talked about art. You had brought up the point of Clovis people, like, do they have art? Do we have any representation of it? Um, and I think my answer was, like, we have Clovis points. And you said that's about it. They're probably too mobile to you know, have time for art. There are some incised stones in the Clovis level at the Galt site in Texas. Texas. Okay. Yeah. Is so there any other Very example? simple incised stones with cross hatching. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other examples? Or? Well, there's a, there's a carved piece of um, bone from uh, Florida, the Vero Beach site in Florida, which has a mammoth carved in it. Um, I'm... Um, I, I'm not sure that that's a, it, it might be a forgery. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, um, I, I can't say that with certainty, but I'm, I, I kind of think it might be um, a forgery. Okay. I'm not, I'm not prepared to, to not, not like those stones at Galt. Those are, those are real. But even if those are your two examples, mm -hmm. those are really just the, the two examples. I mean, there's not, there's there's not much other stuff. I mean, in in Europe when they had ivory, they they do all this carving out of it, right? But they had ivory and Clovis folks. I mean, they at least occasionally hunted mammoths and mastodons, so they had access to ivory. And yet, we we haven't found in the U.S. what they found in the Ordination in the in the Old World. They, sure. they just don't do that here, and the Certainly, Clovis folks were obviously fully modern humans operating with a, a mind no different than yours and, and mine. Mm. So, why isn't it isn't it there? Um, could be a sample size issue. That would be something to to consider. Um, Are they painting the inside of their yurts and things? We just don't it, see it? it. It might it might be that their form of art doesn't preserve it could mm. have been all dance it could have been all body painting it could have been tat ta tattooing yeah um it, it could have been mu music mm -hmm. drumming things that we can't we can't get to 
that's entirely possible. I, I kind of think that if somebody is doing that kind of art, they're also going to do the kind of art that would leave a record. Mm. They'd carve the ivory. Um, they'd carve things into, into bone. But, but I'm not certain that that's, that that's correct, right? But, but that's my gut sense, that, that it, it would be manifested in some substance that we can recover. Uh, the other possibility is that um, those, those folks being as fully human and cultural as, as we are, they're, um, if the purpose of art is to talk about your culture or to, to talk about who you are and how you're different than those people over there, so the Aurignacian folks in Europe, those modern humans may have been producing all this ivory figurines as, as part of a whole process of talking about, here's who we are, mm -hmm. and we're not those, those guys who look a little different than us, the Neanderthals who live in the next valley, the valley over. If Clovis was the, the first peoples in, in what's now the continental United States, and I, I, some days when I get up, that's what I think. Other days, uh, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. But they were certainly living in a landscape where uh, population density was very, very low. Um, they couldn't really afford to be pushing people away from themselves. They really had to be socially, uh, intellectually, emotionally pulling people mm -hmm. towards themselves. Because it, it, if... If they hadn't done that, they would have died out. They would have gone extinct. I mean, small groups can't can't exist as a self-contained unit reproductively. They yeah. need they need to get spouses from other other places. So it may have been that there was no they regarded everyone else on the landscape as just like them. Mm -hmm. They're us, and so we we don't feel the need to sort of talk about our culture. And why is it different than, than what those people are doing? Because what those people are doing is exactly what you're doing. And you regard them as exactly like you. And a potential source of spouses and friends and, and people you can move in with when you can't stand your, your brother-in-law. In, right. In or you buy a bus. Um, it's pretty profound. Dang. Um. The, the last question then would be, they weren't making art that we know of and that we can't see. We know for a fact here they were like hitting the protein hard. So like, you know, they made all these tools and we're digging them up. And this year's Laprel excavations, how does Laprel fit into the, what does Laprel mean for humanity? Like what, what can we learn from this and what would we teach people using this site? For humanity. Or just the general, like, you know, as a foraging professor not that you forged in the dumpster, but like, <laughs> what am I trying to say? You teach hunter-gatherer ecology. There we I, go. I have forged from dumpsters. <laughs> I was a graduate student once. We all were there. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean for humanity? Like, does, about, does it show us about mobility, something we didn't know? Does it show us, like, community with, like, how many people were probably here or things like that? What, what When I look at Clovis archaeology, in general, and, and Laprel La, La is sort of a really well-documented example uh, of it. Um, the, the, the thing that I see is that, that humans are probably designed to, to live in smaller groups mm -hmm. than we live in, but, but we don't have much choice today, right? In a planet of 8 billion people, the only way to live in smaller groups is to, I don't know, kill off 7 billion or so. So, and that, that seems unpleasant. No, I mean, yeah, unpleasant. But but that that does seem to be the way humans were. It's the environment that that we evolved within. Yeah. So so we 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 should be able to take that lesson and find some way to to maybe structure our worlds more so that we live like that. Um, so that. You can live in a New York City and and not feel like you're completely alone, even though you're surrounded by millions of, of of people. Right. And there are ways to do that, but it has a lot to do with, you know, things like you have to socially engineer 
things. And in Europe, they do do this. I mean, they build sort of apartment complexes with these interior plaza playground areas that everyone is sort of facing into. It's very much like a, a hunter-gatherer camp where you have all these these huts that all face into the interior. And it all sort of acts to sort of draw people to, together, right? But the, the fact that you also need friends in faraway uh, places uh, you, that, that you can call upon in times of, of need. So here it, it looks like this, this mammoth, we assume it's hunted, but we don't know that for certain actually. So someone gets a mammoth and the, 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 the stone artifacts that we're finding there really look like we've got people coming from different places on the landscape. Consequently, they're bringing with them the kind of stone that's found in that place on the landscape, and they're all coming, coming together here. And I don't know how that, how that would work, how that would happen, mm -hmm. whether it's it's done through some kind of signaling like like smoke, um, or or whether somebody kind of sends out the word very very quickly. Yeah, um, that we've got a mammoth, a lot a lot of meat. Let's we should all get together and have a good time here. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't know how that how that would happen. Because they uh, were getting ochre from Guernsey, all the way. Over. That's what three days walk from here. It's, it's uh, yeah, yeah, a good long ways, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and and some of the stones are coming from different other places on the landscape, so that they're people are coming from different different places. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, Bob. It's been really fun talking to you. Uh, I appreciate learning from you and I was like talking with you about this stuff because you're the guy to talk to about it. So, Well, it's always a pleasure, David. You've always got interesting questions. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you. All right. I'm going to go spray bug spray on me, my whole body. <laughs> Sweet. That's fun. Bob, are Neanderthals people? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the audience questions, my bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> How do you know? The reason she's asking this question is because I've, I've for a long time argued that Neanderthals were, were, were just like us, just like modern humans, but they weren't cultured. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to change my opinion there because of some of the stuff that people have found, like the eagle talons, which are clearly in that no 